This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode of For Real is sponsored by Libro.fm. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 125,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name, but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from the people who know audiobooks best, local booksellers. Listeners of Book Riot can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. Go to Libro.fm, L-I-B-R-O.fm, and enter code BR3. As a bonus, sign up now and get five free audiobooks delivered to you on Bookstore Day, a one-day national party that takes place at bookstores around the country on Saturday, April 27th. With each listen, take pride in knowing you're supporting local bookstores. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is. Or try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a book riot podcast and is hosted by me, Alice Burton, and fellow rioter Kim Eukera. We're recording on Friday, April 12th. Hi, Kim. Hi, Alice. How are you? I'm great. It's uh, we're as just previously stated, we're recording on Friday. So I am really excited to hopefully devote the weekend maybe to reading. I feel like I haven't had a lot of time aside from like, you know, podcast prep to uh, get some of that in. So psyched. Yeah, I did some reading last weekend because it was the it was uh, the April 24 hour readathon. Um, but I only got to read like for part of Saturday because I had a bunch of other plans. But I did get to finish a couple of books and that was very satisfying. Um, I read Dessa's memoir, My Own Devices, um, which is was came out last fall and I was excited about it. And then I never actually read it, which is like the story of my whole life, really. But yeah, it was great and so interesting. So My Own Devices by Dessa, so good. Um, and then I read, uh, what's it called? Tell Me How It Ends, an essay in 40 questions by Valeria Lucelli, which is um, this another book that came out last fall um, about, or no, it's a little older than that, but it's about um, the immigration crisis and um, her experiences being a translator for children who are in uh, immigration court after they've crossed the border, uh, which is also tough and uh, interesting and good read. So yeah, actually nonfiction to talk about that I have read, which is kind of exciting because normally we just talk about things we're excited to read. That Dessa book has been sitting on my desk at work for, I think like since months before it was published because I got a galley of it somewhere. Um, I'm really heartened to hear that it's really good. I picked it up because I love her track on the Hamilton mixtape. Yes. I think Mm -hmm. Congratulations is maybe the best song on the mixtape. Oh, it definitely is. It's so good. Okay. <laughs> so if anyone ha- listening has not heard it yet, go listen to Dessa's Congratulations on the Hamilton Mixtape. 
Yeah, it's great. And the, her, the whole collection is really good. She's a really interesting writer. And as you might expect from someone who's a songwriter, she has just a bunch of these like perfect sentences and paragraphs thrown in every once in a while where you just, I just read that and thought like, yes, you have captured a perfect thing right there, um, which I think is somebody who writes song lyrics, like that's what they do. So it, it was really good. I liked it a lot. It's a pretty good recommendation. So there's that. And then spinning away slightly from books to mm-hmm. film adaptations, you sent me some news or someone did. <laughs> oh, yeah, I do. As as everyone who listens to this podcast knows, we are obsessed with Bad Blood um, and Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes because it is bananas. Uh, and so there are there are movies planned and documentaries and podcasts. And now there is even going to be a mini series. Um, there hasn't been like from what I can tell, totally 100% confirmed by Hulu. But the news is that um, Kate McKinnon is going to star in a um, mini series of some kind about the rise and fall of Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. And I feel like Kate McKinnon might actually be like the perfect choice. Like, I just think she's going to, I just think that sounds amazing. So potentially Hulu, Elizabeth Holmes mini series starring Kate McKinnon, which I'm excited about. I think Kate McKinnon is like, I think she's probably one of those comedic actresses who is also very good at drama. Mm -hmm. I was excited about the possibility of Amy Adams playing Elizabeth Holmes because, yeah, someone fan casted that on Twitter and I was like, oh, that's really good. Oh, yeah. But I mean, there's so many options for adaptation. So who's to say that this is going to be the only one? It's true. Um, Our other bit of follow-up is another reminder that there is a new Book Riot podcast. We have a variety of genre-specific podcasts. Ours, of course, is nonfiction. But the new one is Kid Lit These Days, which is hosted by New York Times bestselling author Karina Jan Glazer and children's librarian and host of the children's book podcast, Matthew Winner. Uh, Kid Lit These Days pairs the best of children's literature with what's going on in the world today. So uh, give that a listen. Excellent. Yes. Yeah. And with that, we're launching into our first sponsor for the episode. So we have a first degree from Nimbus Publishing, a murder, a missing body, and a sensational trial. Will Sanderson seemed like a model son, a member of the Dalhousie University track and field team. He was about to start classes at Dalhousie's medical school when he was arrested for the first-degree murder of Taylor Sampson, a fellow student who also seemed to be a model son. Interesting. When the physics student disappeared without a trace, the focus turned to Sanderson. Through interviews with friends and relatives, as well as transcripts of the trial and Sanderson's police interrogation. I love a good interrogation. Award-winning journalist Kayla Hounsel paints a complex portrait of both the victim and killer, two young men who seem destined for bright futures. First Degree includes previously unpublished photos and details never made public until now. Again, that is First Degree from Nimbus Publishing. Thank you for sponsoring. Oh, that sounds like too contemporary, too crimey for me, possibly, but also really good. Nice. Um, So with that, we are going to go into our first segment of this week and all other weeks, which is new books, Uh, books coming out recently, soon that we have read or are excited about or interested in picking up. So um, my first pick for this week is called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone by Lori Gottlieb. Uh, And Lori Gottlieb is a therapist who lives in Los Angeles. um, And the book is about her being a therapist, but also what happens when she finds herself going to therapy um, with 
with a therapist named Wendell, who um, she describes as someone straight out of therapist central casting, uh, which I think is very funny. And she ends up going to therapy after... um, the after a, a pretty kind of traumatic, devastating experience, she was um, with a man, and he announced to her one day out of the blue that um, he was not. She she's a mother, and she has a young uh, eight year old kid. I think that he was not interested in in being with her if she and her child. Basically, he just was not interested in kids anymore, and so that relationship ends spectacularly and badly and unexpectedly. And she decides that she needs to go to therapy about that. Um, and it turns out for lots of other reasons. So um, the whole book is about her experiences serving as a therapist, helping patients, and then her experience going to therapy. And I really like this one so far. Um, the chapters are kind of alternating between her experience going to therapy with Wendell and then her experience with patients that she's seeing and kind of what their stories are. And it talks a lot about what therapy is, why we do the things we do when we go to therapy, um, some of the different techniques and how they work or not work. Um, There's a detail in one of the early chapters that explains why therapists' offices are often set up the way that they are, which is that therapists in training are often told like they should sit closest to the door in case something happens and they need to leave the room. And I just thought that was super interesting because I never really thought about that before. And then I thought back to when I was seeing a therapist and yes, she always sat close to the door. So uh, interesting. So anyway, it's really good so far. I'm excited to keep reading it. It's um, it's really good. So this is Maybe You Should Talk to Someone by Lori Gottlieb. I'm really glad that you picked that one. I saw an advertisement for it like this week and I was like, oh shoot, I wish I had like gotten a copy of that in time to talk about on the podcast. And then I saw that you had it listed. So I was like, oh, awesome. I can hear Kim talk about it. But <laughs> Yeah, as someone who uh, goes to therapy and has for a number of years, um, I think it's really interesting to hear therapists talk about kind of their process. And Mm -hmm. especially hearing a therapist go through therapy must be just fascinating. Yeah. Uh, I just saw a thing on Tumblr that said, if your therapist looks at the clock, it's not because they're seeing how long is left in your session, like, because they want it to end. It's because they want to see if there's enough time for them to, like, probe into an issue or if they have a question Mm -hmm. that they want to make sure there's time to cover. And I was like, that's nice. More like therapy background stuff. So, no, this is awesome. Uh, My first pick for this week in terms of new books is, I think I'm pronouncing this right, Lotharingia, A Personal History of Europe's Lost Country by Simon Winder. Maybe it's Winder. Let's say Winder. So this is the third installment in his Personal History of Europe series. He also did uh, Germania, possibly also pronounced Germania, and Danubia. So he's really focusing on... um, Kind of just like, well, I guess Europe. I was going to say Western Europe, but he makes a point at the beginning of Lotharingia where he's like, I focus more on the East as opposed to the West because I think the West, like everyone knows about and it's boring, but it turns out I was wrong. Hence this third book. So essentially he starts out talking about like in 843 AD, as we all know, the (laughs) three grandsons of the great emperor Charlemagne, uh, who, you know, founded the Holy Roman Empire in 800. Uh, met at Verdun. So they were deciding like how to split up this land left to them. And they end up splitting it into three territories. So one is now France. um, One is now Germany. And then the third is like this weird in-between place (laughs) called Lotharingia. So it's this history of in-between Europe. And this, uh, he starts off in, in the intro sort of talking about like walking in this place. And this place is, and I literally out loud was like, Oh, it's it's Alsace-Lorraine 
or Alsace-Lorraine, whatever. But it's that place that's been like the most fought over territory in, I think that could be right, don't get at me, military historians, but I think it's the most fought over territory in Europe because it's just strategically really important. And it's in between, um, I think, like France and Germany. And it's, but it's like this little like in-between strip. Um, that's mm-hmm. where uh, the Nazis brought their tanks, you know, like secretly through these like winding back pathways and stuff um, into France. And it's just had this like generally fascinating history. So this book – I, you know, I'm like a sucker for a good cover. This book has such a fun cover, as do all of the books in his Personal History of Europe series. Um, I wanted to quote something from it where he says, As tens of thousands labored under a burning sun to build great ziggurats at the whim of gold-clad priests and kings, northern Europeans were still playing about with lumps of bear fat. So he just like places you into the story in a really fun, interesting way. Um, I'm very interested in finding out more about this history of sort of Western, Central-ish, Northern Europe. I don't, I'm not good at geography. Anyway, if you would like uh, a really fun history of sort of the area around France and Germany, then I recommend Lotharingia, A Personal History of Europe's Lost Country by Simon Binder. That sounds interesting. I don't, yeah. I was looking, I was, while you were talking, I was like, where is this place? And I was trying to Google it to like, see if I could find it on a map. And yeah, it is just like right in the middle. Weird. I didn't know that was a place like, or historically was a place that people, whatever. I don't know. I'm not good at geography either. (laughs) All right. (laughs) My second book is called uh, The Beneficiary, Fortune, Misfortune, and the Story of My Father by Jenny Scott. Uh, And so this one, uh, the back cover describes it as a family history, a detective story, and a cultural exploration. Um, And it's basically about how uh, one family's inheritance uh, conspired to or resulted in another person's self-destruction. so it starts out with Janny Scott's great-grandfather who built this enormous 800-acre estate uh, out just outside of Philadelphia. Um, and it has like multiple outbuildings and cattle and farming and all sorts of stuff. And it is sort of this like sort of European-ish estate in rural Pennsylvania. Um, and uh, her family grew up on the estate living with all of just like this inherited wealth that her grandfather earned as an investment banker, I believe. And so, like, the whole family lived on the estate until people, like, kind of decided some of them didn't want to and whatever. Um, And so this book follows the family from her great-grandfather building the estate, um, focusing on her great-grandfather, then her grandmother, a woman named Helen Hope Scott, who was a socialite and a horsewoman who uh, may potentially have been the inspiration for Catherine Hepburn's character in the Philadelphia story. Um, And then after her grandmother, there was her father, who um, inherited the family, you know, his portion of the family fortune relatively early and then just kind of fell apart. And so Janie Scott is trying to understand like what happened to her father? Like why did his life fall apart so spectacularly? Um, And does it have a connection back to sort of this whole family's wealth and struggle? And um, so this is very much a book about rich people and rich people problems, um, which Depending on my mood, sometimes I can find annoying and just like, ugh, whatever. Um, but also sometimes it's really satisfying too. So um, most of the, as I've been reading this, it's been kind of the satisfying version of that. Um, just like seeing that bad things happen to selfish people sometimes uh, and that rich people, you know, 
they have problems like maintaining the statues on their estate, but also sometimes they have real problems like the rest of us. Um, so I, it's been really, it's, it's interesting. It's a, a good like American history story. It starts in the Gilded Age kind of era and is all about that, which I find really fascinating. Um, you know, all this like new money and what that means. Um, and so, yeah, it's just been, it's a, a family history kind of detective unlocking the archives kind of a thing, which is really fun. So uh, that is The Beneficiary, Fortune, Misfortune, and the Story of My Father by Janie Scott. Philadelphia's Story is such a good movie. I just wanted to throw that in there. Mm-hmm, it is. Okay. So my next pick is Freedom's Detective, The Secret Service, The Ku Klux Klan, and The Man Who Masterminded America's First War on Terror by Charles Lane. It's out April 9th from Hanover Square Press. This book is really fascinating. I know I throw that word around a lot, but it's because I pick fascinating books. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) But seriously, um, so what this is about is the story. So uh, the Reconstruction era, you know, the Civil War ends 1865 and Lincoln is assassinated. And how do we bring the South back into the Union? Um, So at first, the new president, Andrew Johnson, who is a Democrat, instead Lincoln was a Republican, and Johnson is kind of like, just let the South do whatever it wants, which he wasn't a great guy. So the South elected a lot of people who were in the Confederate government to be in their current new government, um, which the Republican-run um, House of Representatives in you know the Capitol were like, no. And so they refused to seat any of these new elect. One of the people was the vice president of the Confederacy, who is now representing, I think, Georgia. And it was just like, this this is an untenable situation. No. So what happened was they basically said, you know, like, absolutely not. We're like, I mean, I don't know. It was a super complicated thing, right? Where the South was totally beaten down and then they're like beaten down more. And so then they do horrible things in some cases. So what this is, what's happening here is that these newly freed African-American men had gained their voting rights, right? The 14th Amendment is passed and they would soon have this chance to transform Southern politics. So former Confederates and other white supremacists mobilized to stop them. And that's why they started the KKK. So this man in Georgia, again, I think we're in Georgia, he uh, had he was from the South. He was from Georgia. He had always been um, very pro just the rights of humanity. Right. And he was anti-slavery. And so they other people in Georgia saw him as a traitor. He came back. He was elected to office and he had death threats sent against him. And in the end, some members of the KKK broke into his the house in which he was staying, and shot him. So it's this high-profile political assassination, which at first people thought the KKK was like this made-up organization. So because of this assassination, um, the president, who then at that point was Ulysses S. Grant, he basically is like, okay, we have to get someone to like find out who killed this man and like try to like figure out like what is going on with this super secret, terrible organization. So they get uh, what's his face? Hiram C. Whitley. And so he's this really controversial figure. He becomes head of the Secret Service, which previously uh, was pretty much just focused on catching like counterfeiters. Um, but it was the on- government's only intelligence organization. And he had done like a lot of spy stuff during the Civil War. So they were like, great, this is the guy. So he leads this covert war against the um, newly born KKK. And uh, he also, though, He's again, he's like a little controversial, and I think he ends up being forced to leave his position. So, if you want to find out why, check out 
Freedom's Detective, the Secret Service, the Ku Klux Klan, and the man who masterminded America's first war on terror by Charles Lane. Oh, that sounded really good. Yeah, it's fascinating. Again, throwing that word in. (laughs) This is going to sound really stupid, I think, but like, I guess I never really thought about like the starting of the Ku Klux Klan and like what they were kind of like originally doing and reacting to other than like being racists. Um, So yeah, that's super interesting that like this political assassination and like what has spun out from that today where we still have all of these things and how they interact with each other and stuff. Oh, interesting. Good pick. Um, All right. So my last pick is probably, I think it's probably my favorite one of this week and like all the ones this week I've been really, I've been excited about, but this one I am very excited about. And it's called Notes from a Young Black Chef by Kwame Onuachi. And you may recognize Chef Kwame from when he was on Top Chef. Um, I actually did not watch that. So I just found this one kind of incidentally and was excited about it. But um, so it is a memoir by a young black man who grew up in the Bronx, um, but he uh, spent part of his childhood in rural Nigeria because um, as a young person, he was a handful, uh, to put it mildly. And so his mother, who uh, just like couldn't <laughs> couldn't deal with him and all of the other things she was trying to deal with, um, sent him to Nigeria to live with his grandfather. Um, eventually came back, and re- but he returned to the streets where he was selling drugs. Um, and he continued that into college. But thanks to food, which is a huge part of his life, a huge part of his family, um, he was able to – he found a way to, to break himself out of that. Um, and he came back to his parents, his mother, and eventually got a job working as a chef on a Deepwater Horizon cleanup ship, which um, – like, that's not a job that I would have ever been like, someone needs to do that. But yes, obviously, someone needs to cook food for the people that are doing that. Um, so he works there and kind of follows his love of food. He comes to New York and starts a catering company with money. He earns selling candy bars on the subway. Um, he eventually moves on to compete on Top Chef. He opens and closes these very famous, very well-regarded restaurants. Um, and yeah, the memoir is just kind of about his life and all of those things that happened. And it is, uh, it is so good. Uh, it opens with him um, serving the dinner at the opening of the African American History Museum in I, I don't remember where that is now. It's in is it in DC? Oh yeah, it's in DC. Yeah. Um. So he he is uh, leading the meal or um organized and catering the meal for that. And so it starts at that. And it's just this amazing reflection of race and food and culture and the inside world of restaurants and what it takes to get in there, but also what it takes to succeed there. Um, And it's just, it's so fascinating. I I really was, I've been reading it. I just have not wanted to put it down because it's so good. Um, And I I think he has a ghostwriter that there's another guy credited with it, Joshua David Stein, who's a journalist. So I think he is probably helping with it. Um, But the two of them together have written just an incredible book. It is so good. So uh, if you can pick this one up, I definitely recommend it. It is Notes from a Young Black Chef by Kwame Onowachi. I am, my finger is very much not on the pulse of food writing. So I'm really glad that you picked that. I'm not totally either, but um, yeah, I saw it in a few places and I, I downloaded it. And um, as soon as I started reading, I just thought, man, like, I don't want to stop reading this book. Like, I'm bummed. I have to put it down to try some other ones right now. So it's it's great. Oh, that's awesome. That's always the best feeling. Um, speaking of that, I have a – like, well, it's a surprise to me. I was not expecting to enjoy this book as much as I, I have been. But it is 50 Things That Aren't My Fault, Essays <laughs> from the Grown-Up Years by Kathy Guys White, out April 2nd from G.P. Putnam's Sons. 
So Kathy Guys White is the creator of the Kathy comic strip that if you grew up in the 90s, I think there was still like a fair number of cultural <laughs> references to. And uh, it pretty much I think its heyday was uh, the 70s, right? That was the main Kathy time. Something like that, yeah. Yeah. And then I, there was like there's a Liz Lemon thing on 30 Rock where she's referencing like chocolate, chocolate, chocolate. And it's a really good <laughs> gift, by the way, if you can find it. Um, But – I always kind of grew up being like, I don't know if she's actually like super feminist. It seems like she's reducing, right? Like women to just being obsessed with mm-hmm. their weight and all this stuff. But I started, so I wasn't, I didn't know, I didn't know what to expect from this book. And I started reading it and I was immediately like, this is awesome and like fun and insightful. And I'm just like, I'm really enjoying it. So one of the first things she talks about is she's in line to like buy a sandwich or something and she can't. She's having like problems finding her wallet and all this stuff. And this man is sighing behind her. And she like turns around and looks at this guy. And she's just like looking specifically at his eyes. And she says that she noticed that like not one moment of his morning was spent on eyeliner, eyeshadow, mascara, fine line filler, under eye concealer, eyebrow shape. Like she just goes on this list and she talks about all of the ways that women have to spend so much more time focusing on their appearance. And like she talks about the whole arduous task of trying on like bathing suits, which again was like a thing in Kathy comics. But here she's like, this is time that could be spent doing something else. And men like go and pick up swimming trunks off a rack and are done. Right. And it's, Mm -hmm. and there's like this whole thing of doing that same kind of, um, initiation i guess if you will with her daughter like going to buy swimming suits with her and having her daughter like crying in the dressing room because she's like and she, and kathy guys why just like this is the thing that i was trying to like work to mm-hmm. fix like 40 years ago and like here is my daughter doing this so but it's all, like it's funny she talks about her relationship with her parents and now that they're older and like she's going through you know like kind of this new phase of her life i'm just really really liking it so again that's 50 Things That Aren't My Fault, Essays from the Grown-Up Years by Kathy Geiswhite. Oh, that sounds so good. The minute you talked about her daughter, like, crying in the dressing room trying on swimsuits, like, I just, like, my eyes teared up because, like, I've been that little girl and, oh, my gosh, and it sucks that we've all been there. <laughs> what a terrible, terrible thing. Oh, that sounds so good. Um, Yeah, and again, surprising. It was surprising that uh, – because I – yeah. I did grow up like reading those comic strips in book form and I was just like, yeah, these are fine. And I was like, oh, she like has really good stuff to say. But anyway, um, this brings us to our other sponsor for the episode, which I am very excited about because we are sponsored by The Five by Hallie Rubenhold, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. If The Five sounds familiar, it's because I talked about it last episode. And so you should like doubly read it, maybe read it twice. I don't know what I mean. So (laughs) what is the five in case you did not listen to last week's episode, in which case you should do that. But anyway, in the meantime, five devastating human stories and a dark and moving portrait of Victorian London. The five is the untold lives of the women killed by Jack the Ripper. So for more than a century, newspapers have been keen to tell us that the Ripper preyed on sex workers. Not only is this untrue, as historian Hallie Rubenhold has discovered, it has prevented the real stories of these fascinating women from being told. Now in this devastating narrative of five lives, Rubenhold finally sets the record straight, revealing a world not just of Dickens and Queen Victoria, but of poverty, homelessness, and rampant misogyny. They died because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time, but their greatest misfortune was to be born a woman. Pick up the five, 
it is fantastic. Uh, and it gives you, again, like this really generally like not seen perspective on the the victims of Jack the Ripper. And it kind of puts him on the sidelines, puts them in the center. Um, again, that's The Five by Hallie Rubenholt, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Thank you for sponsoring. So good. Every time, yeah, that book just sounds better and better and more interesting. Awesome. All right. So now we're going to move on to our uh, kind of weekly themed segment. Uh, and this week, since uh, this episode is going to be coming out on April 16th, which is the day after uh, tax day in the United States. So we thought that we would talk uh, death and taxes and money and the economy and all that stuff. So um, a couple of fun facts before we get started. Uh, Alice added this one, which is that in 1913, the 16th Amendment was ratified, which permanently legalized an income tax. So that's interesting. I did not know that. Um, and then I looked up the death and taxes quote because I was curious, like, where did that come from? Because I actually didn't know. And there are, according to the uh, Freakonomics podcast, their blog, um, people say that uh, Ben Franklin was the first person to say this in a letter that he wrote in 19... Or, 1789. And in the letter, he says, our new constitution is now established and it has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Um, but there are other people who, uh, other potential uh, sources after that. But it seems like Benjamin Franklin is the general belief of uh, death and taxes. So anyway, taxes in the economy. This is going to be an exciting one. <laughs> Classic Franklin quote. Classic. Um, so the first book I'm going to talk about is one that I I wasn't totally sure if I was going to be into it or not. And then I read it and it was awesome. And I, I feel like such a nerd being like, read this book about taxes. It's amazing. But it was. Um, the book is called A Fine Mess, A Global Quest for a Simpler, Fairer, and More Efficient Tax System by T.R. Reid. Uh, and so this book uh, was published in 2017, and it is about the urgent problem of America's failing tax code. Um, so he, the premise of the book is basically that ever since the tax code was put into place, about every 30 years, it becomes so complicated and bloated with loopholes and write-offs and provisions that it sort of just needs to be completely revamped. Um, and that has happened historically. Uh, uh, in the United States, it happened in the 1920s, it happened in the 1950s, and it happened in 1986. And so at the time the book was written, uh, published in 2017, like we were right at the point at which perhaps we needed to do this again. So he takes a look at the tax code and then compares it to other um, systems and tax systems across the world, specifically tax systems in advanced high-tech free market democracies to see how the United States compares and then whether there are ideas in those countries that we could borrow or adapt to make our tax system better. And so I felt like he was really fair and that he does, he leans a little bit left, I would say, but I think it's generally pretty fair and like gives um, uh, open discussion of a lot of different taxing philosophies um, comes down to the idea that a broad-based, low-rate tax approach is best, and that systems that are simple with few exceptions and exclusions, exemptions, that kind of thing, is the best way to do that. Um, but he gives a lot of good evidence and examples for from economists, from other countries, from all sorts of different people about why that is the way things ought to be, perhaps. The writing is super clear. I thought the chapters were really well organized. Like the way he kind of led from one to the other felt very logical to me. Um, and I followed his whole argument. And yeah, it just was, um, it was so interesting. Like I checked it out from the library because I was like, this is the perfect book. I'll have to see how this one is. And I 
I sat down and I read the whole thing in just a couple of days because it was really interesting. So um, if you want like a good kind of overview of taxes and like how the United States tax system compares to other countries, this one is really great. Um, and that is A Fine Mess, A Global Quest for a Simpler, Fairer, and More Efficient Tax System by T.R. Reed. Let's say hypothetically speaking that I am someone who doesn't know what broad-based low rate means. Oh, so that means that uh, your tax system should apply to as many people as possible. So it should have a broad um, reach, but that the over the rate should be generally low. So if you're doing income tax, income tax should apply to lots of people, almost everyone, as many people as possible, but the rate should generally be low. Or like sales tax, it should apply to everything or many things, but the, the amount you're taxing for each thing should be low. So the percentage or whatever. Interesting. I have not enough information to have an opinion on that, but that is still interesting. Okay, so my pick for, well, one of my two picks for our death and taxes section is Elliot Ness, The Rise and Fall of an American Hero by Douglas Perry, who also wrote The Girls of Murder City. So he's pretty Chicago focused. Um, So you might ask, how does this tie in with taxes? But I have an answer, which is that uh, for those of you who have not seen the film The Untouchables, first of all, you should do that. Second of all, it all centers around Elliot Ness, who took down Al Capone, who was prosecuted for evasion of income tax. So, yeah, boom. Okay. Oh, good one. <laughs> That's like a mic drop right there. <laughs> Done. <laughs> so in this book, uh, in, in general, and especially in The Untouchables, Elliot Ness is portrayed by Kevin Costner as the stolid, upright federal agent who relentlessly and successfully pursued Al Capone and destroyed Capone's Chicago empire. So apparently, I mean, I haven't kept up with like various Elliot Ness historians, but apparently <laughs> they've uh, illustrated recently that his role in bringing down Capone was tangential. But this author, Douglas Perry, uh, says that, no, he was uh, he should be honored as this highly successful lawman, especially after leaving Chicago when he went to Cleveland. Here's the thing, though, which I'm sure he covers in the book. I haven't gotten to that point yet, but. The reason that I know of Ness as being at all kind of not suspect, but um, taking on some notoriety was his uh, he when he was in search of this, uh, I forget which murderer it was, but it was like a someone who uh, had committed a series of, of unfortunate things. Um, he burned down an entire, uh, I believe the term at the time was hobo city. Like a basically like a giant tent city. And he was just like, yeah, well, um, he could be in here. So like, just burn it all down. And it uh, (laughs) it was just like an absolutely terrible decision and left a lot of people like extra homeless. And um, yeah, so there's that in addition to the whole taking down of Al Capone. But, you know, people are complicated. Um, So if you would like to read more about this complicated individual, that is Elliot Ness, The Rise and Fall of an American Hero by Douglas Perry. That's a good one because it has like death and taxes in it. Good one. Oh, good point. Yeah. So my second pick is an old book. It's from two, old, well, not old, old. It's older from 2008. Um, it's Gang Leader for a Day, A Rogue Sociologist Takes to the Streets by Sudhir Ven- Venkatesh. Uh, and so this is about um, life and the underground economy around the projects in Chicago. So um, Venkatesh, when he was a first-year uh, grad student in sociology, uh, he went to the Robert Taylor Homes, which is one of Chicago's notorious housing projects. Uh, notorious in quotes because that's from the book. Um, 
and looking for people who would take a survey on urban poverty. Um, and he did it like partially because it was a good place to get survey answers and partially because he was like trying to impress his professors and how like brave and cool he was. So meh, whatever. Um, so while he's there, he meets a gang leader named JT um, and they sort of become friend-ish. And um, JT kind of allows him to access and see and report on the inner workings of life in that area and the gang's role in the community. So um, Venkatesh spent more than a decade with access to JT and his gang. Um, He learns about how they work, um, like both the harm and the benefit that the gangs provide to that neighborhood, um, the taxes that people are forced to pay to the gang to get protection and stop from being harassed and and injured, basically. And yeah, so like this underground economy that was working. Um, So he does some interviews to try and explore the different ways that like food, service, prostitution, childcare, and whatnot are all part of this uh, underground economy run by the gang and kind of outside of the normal machinations of taxing and whatever. Um, And so like this is not a perfect book. Um, There are definitely parts that like when I read it, I remember being uncomfortable, um, like in the way that he doesn't really acknowledge the impact his presence and his research had on the people around him um, and like the, the negative effects that that could have caused. But in general, it's a really interesting book and it's um it's not a, a super academic book. So definitely like read it in that frame. It's more a memoir about his experiences doing this research and what he learned. But um, I, I enjoyed it and I thought it was interesting and I think it's a good, nice readable look at something that we don't get to look at very often. So uh, that is Gang Leader for a Day, A Rogue Sociologist Takes to the Streets by Sudhir Venkatesh. And I just looked this up and it, it looks like the Robert Taylor homes were demolished in 2007. So do you know, was he writing this like right before they were going to be like demolished then? I think so. Yeah. He, he, I mean, he was there, he's, he was there in and out for like a decade. So I think he must have started. Um, I think this book must have been published in 2007 because I think I was reading the paperback where I grabbed the date. But yeah, it was, it came out before they were demolished or right around the time they were. But he was there before that. Got it. Yeah, I think all of those high rises in Chicago have been torn down now. So. Um, oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, huh. the the other main ones were, I mean, I could be wrong, but the other main ones were Cabrini Green, which I've lived here for 11 years oh, now, and I think they were being torn down right around, so probably around the same time as Robert Taylor. Mm-hmm. There was just a lot of, you know, problems. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so my last pick for our taxes section is The Great Tax Wars, Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, Wilson, How the Income Tax Transformed America by Stephen R. Weissman. This came out in 2004. If you can think back that far, I believe, uh, oh gosh, George W. Bush was president. So I wonder if we had any tax stuff happening at the time. I was a, a clueless 19-year-old during this time period, so I had no idea what was happening with the tax law. So what The Great Tax Wars is, it's the epic story of six decades of often violent conflict over wealth, power, and fairness that gave America the income tax. As we stated at the beginning of this segment, the income tax was officially uh, put into whatever general constitutional law in 1913 with the 16th Amendment. Um, I did not know there was an amendment saying that we had that. So I uh, didn't either. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well. So more you know. This is, um, so it's the story of this uh, period of radical change. So it starts with Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War, and it goes through the progressive area, uh, era under Teddy Roosevelt and ends with Woodrow Wilson and World War One, And that's, you know, when we actually get this like official income tax, which was, I believe, very controversial at its time. Um, because people were like, we've never had this before, and this is unfair. But um, so during 
these years of upheaval from Lincoln until uh, 1913, America was transformed from this agrarian society into an industrial nation. And then we had, you know, like the robber barons and like the Gilded Age. And so these uh, basically would be now billionaires, like amassing this great wealth. does not sound similar to now at all. And so these farmers and workers rebelled and they had this class war that was narrowly averted and America emerges as this global power. So there's a lot happening in a period of like 50 years. Um, Weissman shows how the ever controversial income tax has transformed America and how today's debates about the tax echo those of the past. So if you want to know how we got to where we are, at least uh, up and through Woodrow Wilson. Then look at the great tax wars, Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, Wilson, How the Income Tax Transformed America by Stephen R. Weissman. Interesting. That sounds really good too. Yeah. So there you have it. A couple, a few different different suggestions about books about taxes and the economy if you want to explore that a little bit. Uh, And so with that, we will close out the show as we usually do by talking about what we're reading right now. And so I actually, I'm kind of in the middle of all the books I talked about this week and I want to finish all of them. So I'm not really sure what that actual next thing will be. But one book I did just buy today that I'm very interested in reading is called Burnout, The Secret of to Unlocking the Stress Cycle by Emily Nagsaki and Amelia Nagsaki. I just butchered their last names. Whew, I forgot to look that up. So anyway, this is a book about um, burnout, uh, specifically burnout in women and how uh, the stra- how stress affects women specifically. Um, and then it offers some kind of practical and uh, specific suggestions about things that we can do to try and combat that. Um, and I picked that one up because I've been feeling really stressed and worn out lately. And I, uh, I was reminded about it on Twitter yesterday and I thought, boy, I want to buy that book. And so I, I went to the store lunch today and I bought it. So I'm hoping to maybe get that pick that one up this weekend because it seems topical for where my brain is at right now. Oh, you should also like try to take naps. That seems good. I should take a nap. That's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of reading another book, Kim. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, Friday night. Okay. So my current read is I've gotten farther than I ever have before in The Stranger Beside Me by Anne Rule. Um, I've recommended it on the podcast before, but I think I had read like probably the first hundred pages and now I'm um, probably like three quarters of the way done. It's kind of like a hefty tome, at least the version. I have like the updated whatever hardcover and Mm -hmm. it's really good. Anne Rule, I think, tries uh, hard to be as self-aware of her relationship with Ted Bundy and how that – oh, yes, the book is about Andrew's relationship with Ted Bundy and his whole um, general criminal history, which is horrific, and he's a monster. But anyway, so every now and then, you know, you kind of feel like, are you trying to put yourself a little bit in the center of the story here, Andrew? But overall, I think she's, she's very aware of that, and she is a very good writer. I will say that if you like true crime, but you let, you can handle, like, what I'm going to call forensic files, true crime, where, you know, it gets just very into like carpet fibers and stuff and doesn't focus as much on like the tragedy of these human beings because that's very hard to take in. Um, This is a little difficult because she gets very graphic about some of the murders. So I found it like every now and then I'm like, okay, this (laughs) 
this is a lot. Um, <laughs> so just be aware of that uh, going in. But I, I do think that it still remains, you know, like one of the top three true crime classics. And um, I'm glad to be almost done with it. So cool. Yeah. With that, you can find us on social media. On Twitter, I am at It's Alice Time. And Kim is at Kim the Dork. And if you feel so inclined, uh, you can rate and review the show on iTunes. Uh, that helps people find us more easily. And while you're there, you can subscribe so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. And uh, so with that, I am Kim Ugrath. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast. <laughs>